This is Archive Atlanta, episode 99, Overalls. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. I know, overalls? Am I finally losing it? Probably. But stick with me here. This started as a small mention in an article of the Atlanta Overall Club, which took me into the rabbit hole about the physical garment, but also its symbolism, where it was made in Atlanta, and what overall clubs even were. This week's episode is a tiny bit shorter than normal, but I couldn't resist sharing this fascinating small piece of our city's history and how it connected to other movements in the U.S., Before getting started, I also want to say that I am recording this episode on brand new, better equipment. Two years into the podcasting game, um, I finally upgraded, and this is all possible because of my Patreon contributors. So there is a link in the show notes where for as little as $1 a month, you can support the podcast and help me buy cool stuff, Um, but more microphones. So I have a ton of interviews lined up before the end of 2020 that I am so excited about, and I can finally bring you more Atlanta history content from people that are much smarter than me. Let's begin today's episode with the overall itself. As a child that entered middle school in the early 90s, I have a very keen memory of when they became fashionable again in my lifetime. And I will say I had a pretty cool pair of Gap wide leg overalls. The first historical mention of the overall dates back to 1776, and some sources list it as protective garments that were worn by enslaved people. Their mass production was credited to Levi Strauss around like the 1890s, but they didn't look the way you think of them now. They were more like suspenders attached to blue jeans or denim pants, and it wasn't until 1911 that you get the first pair of bib overalls, which is kind of what we think of they look like today. I think it's common knowledge that overall symbolized both poverty and the working class. The garment was utilitarian in purpose and created first to address the needs of rail workers and then spread to almost every other trade. Politicians and social movements understood this as well. And in 1913, the governor of Arkansas um, and surrounding states donned overalls in Little Rock to kick off the road work campaign that was part of the Good Roads movement. Um, in the 60s Civil Rights Movement, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee leaders wore overalls to connect with rural voters that otherwise weren't listening to them because they were um, educated college kids from the North. In 1913, Atlanta, Hamilton Carhartt arrived in town to announce the opening of a branch factory in the city. It would take the top two floors of the Marcus Loeb overall factory, which stood at the corner of Pryor and Mitchell Streets, and employed mostly women. So World War I starts in 1914, and while the U.S. did not formally join the conflict until 1917, what was happening in Europe was 100% affecting us here in the U.S., It turns out that the dark blue color we associate with blue jeans was called German indigo. And although indigo was cultivated from nature um, and processed to use as a dye, it was the Germans that perfected a way to do this all in a lab. So with Germany at war, um, dye shortages are felt across the globe. Carhartt announces a new color to be made in Atlanta. and It's going to be called Kutch Brown. The new dye was coming from South America, so it could be easily obtained, and everyone's going to love this new color. 
Local women start admitting that they're wearing overalls at home during housework. It's a lot more comfortable than wearing a dress or a skirt, but they're not quite comfortable heading out into public just yet. And this is a good time to talk about life for Atlantans during World War I. Although the U.S. did not have formalized food rationing like it did in World War II, it relied heavily on propaganda campaigns to convince people to curb their food consumption. So this is where we get the term victory garden. Um, it's also the reason why the municipal market or the curb market was built downtown. I talked a little bit about that in one of my Patreon episodes. Um, but these marketing campaigns were really successful. And then the entire U.S. manages to lower its food consumption by like 15%. There's also a wide scarcity of goods, and so increased production is just the main goal of all industries. But when the war ends in 1918, things are not good. The Federal Reserve and Treasury policies had been responsible for inflation that has basically doubled the price from everything where it was four years ago. And so when peace returns, there's fears of overproduction. So not surprisingly, manufacturers drop their production. I think there's a stat that says production dropped 50% in 16 out of 22 principal industry groups. In response, labor groups begin striking for eight-hour workdays, but also higher wages to keep up with inflation. And on the other side, companies want to keep wages low because inflation is driving up their raw material costs and their operating costs. By the end of 1919, the country had seen more than 3,600 strikes, with 4 million workers having been on strike at least once. The government had been controlling businesses during wartime and then suddenly let go. So coupled with people rushing to buy goods that had been rationed, we get a little bit of chaos. And of course, the law of supply and demand, you know, dictates that business are raising their prices. And then we have rapid inflation, 15% inflation from 1919 to 1920. By August of 1919, things were coming to a head. Uh, President Wilson appointed a committee to study this problem and propose a solution. Seven days later, he stands in front of Congress and he says he has, quote, no complete immediate remedy because free processes and supply and demand are basically not going to resume until peace is fully established. One of the hardest hit industries in terms of inflation was clothing manufacturing. In early forms of protest, men began to abandon suits and wear overalls. Not only was it cheaper, but I think, again, it symbolized that poor working class. Overall sales were already on the up as returning soldiers were going back to work, and then at times they could only find jobs as laborers. Atlanta's Carhartt Union-made overalls were worn by every marcher in that local Labor Day parade that year, um, and then women across the city were also joining men by wearing calico or gingham dresses, symbolizing what the wife of somebody who wore overalls would have worn. Birmingham, Alabama is considered the unofficial national headquarters of the overall club movement. In April of 1920, 3,000 men in that city committed to wearing overalls. Their official emblem was a pair of scissors, and the members included judges, lawyers, bankers, doctors, businessmen, and all of them appeared in their respective professions in overalls. So if you went to the dentist, your dentist had overalls on. In Georgia, Macon and Columbus were the first cities to establish overall clubs. 
John A. Manjet was an Atlanta cotton broker, an executive committee member of the Men and Religion Freedom Movement. In 1916, he fought local theaters who aired movies on the Sabbath. And in 1919, he was Fulton County's food administrator and in charge of setting food prices in post-war Atlanta. By the following year, he was the Fair Price Commissioner for the state of Georgia. And part of this work was dealing with high inflation, high cost of goods, and more importantly to him, the insane cost of men's clothing. In January of 1920, based on reports that Atlanta merchants were making 100% profits, the committee investigated the selling of suits, overcoats, shoes, shirts, and underwear. Except silk underwear. I don't know why that just cracked me up. He warns that anyone selling above the price set by his department will be subject to prosecution. In April, Manjit called for the formation of the overall club. 1,000 Atlantans answered the call, and a mass meeting was planned at the Baptist Tabernacle. Yes, same Baptist Tabernacle concert venue downtown. The church's reverend, J.W. Ham, he was going to speak. He was going to present all of this in his sermons. He was behind this 100%. And the plan is, before this big rally at the Tabernacle, they're going to have a mass overall sale uh, in downtown where you can purchase your overalls and your jumpers for like 5 to $7 for, I guess, two pieces, it says, and then single pieces were like $4. Many Atlanta business houses pledged 100% support, but two very eager employees of M. Cuts & Co. were the first to appear on the streets in overalls. Their names were J.F. Hayes and Charlie Parker. In order to ensure that no enterprising Atlanta man was going to think of buying these and then reselling them for profit, they decided to add 50 cents to the price that, the, that would then be donated to a long list of charities. And I was really impressed with this list of charities. It covered like every single orphanage in the city, white, black, or Jewish, um, every charity for the poor, even the Confederate soldiers' home. And so they were able to raise money for those. 100 women from the Home Economics Department at the Atlanta Women's Club decided to approve the overall movement, and they pledged to take intensive courses on dressmaking to bring down clothing prices. Within a week, the Atlanta Overall Club is at 3,000 members. Overall day is scheduled for a Monday, and the weekend before, a lot of overalls will be sold at the enclosure between City Hall and the gas building on Marietta Street. There will be heavy khaki, like the one used in the government during the war, heavy blue denim, and light blue and white duck overalls with matching coats. Manjit says he's picking khaki. The tabernacle pastor has added a women's meeting to the agenda, who have all pledged to wear gingham. Uh, the Hanson Motor Company band is going to play at this meeting, and then G.W. Hanson himself sends his pledge card all the way from St. Simon's. They have promises from a 125 Ford Motor Company employees and a hundred names from the new Georgia Tech Overall Club. In total, 2,500 overalls were sold outside City Hall, and the meeting at the Tabernacle was attended by almost 2,000 people. Reverend Ham is on board. He's up there, he's rocking his overalls. He tells the crowds that society has been, quote, guilty of the intoxication of living lavishly, end quote, and that clothes have, quote, created too many distractions. They have separated folks and created social aristocracy that this movement will help destroy, end quote. Mayor Key speaks to the crowd, you know, pledging his support, but he's wearing a suit, so he's not totally on board. And there's a really funny story I read. So apparently the overall meeting is set for 2.30 p.m. But at 3.30 p.m., uh, a guy named Gypsy Pat Smith is scheduled to speak. So Smith was a famous evangelist, and his talk was going to be about the Irish question. 
And this is relevant because part of the post-World War I era involves the Red Scare, which is the fear of communism. 2,000 people in Atlanta, they're there to listen to the overall club, and they're kind of coerced into staying to listen to this rant about Irish Bolsheviks, but apparently it was a huge success, so they were clapping for overalls, they were clapping to be anti-communist as well. By April 19th, the Atlanta club members reached 4,500. Georgia Congressman William Upshaw, who I talked about in the Movie Censor episode, he wants to introduce the overall movement to the U.S. Congress. It's basically just him and a South Carolina senator named Senator Dial, um, but you gotta give them an A for effort. So Upshaw converts the House door holder to wear overalls, and then he has six of his female secretaries wear them in the offices, much to the horror of the ladies from the Daughters of the American Revolution group. On a particularly cold day, Upshaw appears before Congress in his long-tailed coat, which was normal at the time, and he explains that he had to put his overalls away for just one day because he was freezing. In May, he does get the War Department to sell their stock of two million overalls that they had been kind of hoarding during the war, and then he later secures approval for letter carriers in Atlanta to wear overalls on the job. At this point, the overall movement has spread throughout the nation. The student body at the University of South Carolina, Yale, Washington, and Lee, they're all wearing overalls. Uh, students at Wesleyan University in Connecticut were required to wear either overalls or old clothes at all times, unless they were, quote, entertaining a young lady on campus, end quote. Violators at this school were thrown into the swimming pool. State governments in Texas, Missouri, and Oklahoma, just to name a few, had their Capitol buildings and courtrooms filled with people in overalls. There was even an overalls wedding at the Waldorf Astoria, where Gertrude Reinhardt, donning a chambray dress that she got for $4, married W. Ramsey Frederick, who wore blue jeans. And at the reception, all of the guests were in overalls or gingham. But all good things must come to an end. And as you may have been predicting, the movement began to backfire. Concerns about the rising cost of overalls were presented all along the way, but people like Upshaw believe that, okay, there's going to be a small rise in the cost, but it's going to wash out with a decrease in the clothing cost. And it didn't really work that way. The price of a pair of overalls went from $2 to $6, but the price of cotton rose as well. And this led northern textile manufacturers to kind of create this southern conspiracy of cotton growers, like it was a purposeful thing to punish them. A newspaper ad is taken out by the Crown Overall Manufacturing Company from Cincinnati, Ohio, and they're like, whoa. So we're making overalls more expensive for the working man who has to wear them. We're sympathetic about high clothing prices, but we do not control the cost. And manufacturers around the country are saying the same thing. They could not keep up because of the demand of the garment from these new clubs. And so one executive gives the analogy um, that it's like a hunter hitting an innocent bystander. You guys are shooting at the high prices, but you're hitting the man that needs to wear these overalls. In May of 1920, the Constitution printed an ad, paid for by the paper, defending the retail clothing merchants of Atlanta. This movement is unjust, it's unfair, would you blame the carpenter for the high cost of building material? No, of course not. And the only way to remedy these high costs is to increase production. Now, the terrible news is that just months later, the Marcus Loeb overall factory caught fire when someone left a pressing iron on. 
And while the overall club movement went quietly into the night of history, the garment itself continued to be necessary and needed by workers across America. In 1921, one of the largest overall manufacturers in New York revised pricing and wholesalers were able to purchase it for a little bit cheaper. Desire for overalls in Atlanta is so strong that local businessman Isidore Jacobs buys a closed factory in Alabama just to disassemble it and sell the raw materials at auction. By September of 1921, the manufacturing industry output of this city was valued at $5 million. And over the last 25 years, it had grown to make Atlanta a leader in this industry. The overall never quite had a heyday like it did in 1920. But like all fashion, it will continue to come back in and out of style for the non-labor industry population. So there you have it, the story of overalls post-World War I, economic woes, the overall club movement, and hopefully a little extra appreciation next time you see someone wearing a pair. Thank you all for listening. Remember to leave a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Um, last call for questions for next week's Q&A episode. You can send those to me. Um, all my contact information is in the show notes. Stay tuned for a really special Halloween episode that I am super excited about. There are lots of big, exciting things coming to the podcast that I'm going to share before the end of the year. Hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.